if there's one piece of advice that I would give to you is coach your kids or be involved. And it doesn't have to be in sports. So maybe it's that you're into Lego robotics or debating or that was such a great part of being a parent and such a no-brainer for me. It was just so much fun to be a coach. Hey, Anthony, welcome. Thanks for coming in today. Uh, I'm really looking forward to talking to you. And it's been a few years since we yeah. really got together and we yep. worked together at Intel for maybe, I don't know, 12 years or so. Mm -hmm. Give me an update. What, what you been up to? Well, thank you for having me, Ian. Great to see your setup and interested in your adventures here in developing your own podcast. That's great. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I guess I we probably last interacted maybe even before COVID because uh, remember we went all remote kind of the winter of 2021. And then I ended up leaving Intel in June, 2021 and joining Facebook. And I was at Facebook until this past summer and left and since then have been thinking about what my next steps are as well as running my own what i'm calling product strategy and market research firm called pmf insights so having fun working with startups who are in the early stages of trying to find product market fit and that's trying the PMF. to yeah that's what the pmf stands for and trying to accelerate that time to product market fit through better understanding their customers yeah how are you finding new business for that or, or customers? Or where did you start with trying to create that new business for yourself? Uh, it started with developing my own website. And so I used the Wix platform in doing that. It took about four or five weeks. I don't think it's necessarily a professional website, but it's got the basics, kind of who I am, um, what my history or past experience is. Yeah how I would typically work with a client. And the first client I got was somebody that was referred to me by a contact that I had done a lot of leadership coaching with. And it ended up being a person that was in a accelerator program in Long Beach. And I've been working with him for about three or four months. And he is a classic kind of example of who I might work with. He's in his mid twenties. He's putting together an app for in the gaming space. And I've been doing a lot of more so on the product strategy side versus research, hmm. but helping him think through his product, the customer journey, making sure that he's addressing key needs uh, and then helping him even uh, most recently put together his investment pitch was he had five minutes to invest uh, to a, a bunch of folks. He was looking for a half a million dollars and it was quite incredible to see him pack it all into just five minutes. Wow. That's a big, that's a real business if he's shooting for that kind of money. And, and what well, is it, uh, just a plain old game or is this like a, no, more of an involved it's, um, business part of game? the, part of the experience I had with him was pivoting. Mm -hmm. Um, in the beginning, it was more toward trying to bring gamers together. So there's a lot of social isolation in gaming mm. and so people even going back to my work at intel i know that gaming a lot of gamers are in essence in a tribe they have their friends they game with and so this was originally designed to bring people together so they might be playing world of warcraft and it would be an app that would bring people together so they could game together not game in isolation yeah uh and then working with him we decided to do a pivot and he's now more looking at helping 
um, gamers develop user-generated content. And so when they're in, this is a huge trend that's happening in, in gaming. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people that need basic education on how to do that. And so this is in essence, a two-way marketplace that would bring together what he calls learners, as well as experts that would be teaching the basics of how to create user-generated content. Yeah, connecting those people up that have made other pieces of stuff for a game and know the whole process, how to get that installed in your computer, how to you know, right. start I, learning I, I the tools. I recall you, a lot of you were a gamer and uh, uh, Minecraft, um, a lot of these games, it's, it's much more gamers having their own elements incorporated into the game, which they generate versus just simply playing a game. Sure. That's cool. Yeah. That changing that social element from being like broadly uh, trying to connect people, which is definitely a, a market other big companies are trying to serve. And it's a challenging startup to make to this. This other one seems like a cool idea to, yeah. you know, focus in on a portion of the game market and grow from there. Um, anyway, well, good luck to him. Of course, coming back to you, you went to Facebook for a while. You were working at Intel for a bit or a long career. You told me uh, 21 years, I think. Correct. Which is uh, pretty incredible. What did you find different between those companies or like, what's it, what's it like working for those big companies versus trying to start your own business? There's huge differences in going from Intel to Facebook or what now we call meta. The culture was completely different. Um, the pace of innovation was hypercharged at Intel. We were essentially working in Silicon or our team was driving insights into the evolution of different processors and what the capabilities that we would include in those processors. And those were typically two to three time year horizons. Yeah. For years product, until your insight would turn into right. something. Yeah. Though. And whereas at Facebook, it was almost, I would describe as a weekly product development cycle. And so I know for the average Facebook user, you might be using Facebook and you're constantly saying, why did they change that? Or that's weird. This used to be over there. Now I have to do it this way. Facebook is constantly involving the experience. And so on pretty much a weekly basis, we were launching new features. We were looking at understanding whether they were moving our key KPIs, if they weren't stopping them, looking at coming up with new ones. So it was just a much faster product development cycle. Is there two portions of the research there? Like one that is doing this longer term thinking and one that's doing the UX, you know, move the button around and, you know, what's our our small feature level fixes? Um, Or is it mostly just the iterative let's get a week week's worth done. Yeah, I think it was mostly um, evaluative, meaning we were constantly testing or coming up with new features or new ways of interacting with the app. And part of that is Facebook's time horizon is kind of six to nine months or maybe 12 months. Nobody's really thinking beyond 12 months. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas it, you'll recall at Intel where we would be a lot of our research was very focused on longer term trends and how people were going to use technology. And at Facebook, it's not attention deficit disorder, but it's what can you, you know, I, I have these goals over the next six months and I need to make these changes versus nobody's really thinking about maybe they are, but, but the bulk of what we were doing was trying to impact kind of the six, six to nine months. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah, that makes sense that, the scales would shift that way. Did it feel like there wasn't enough 
looking into the future or like no one had a handle on like what is our customer or our long-term goal or was it like that's that sucks job to do and you know yeah that's a you that's interesting you raise zuck and and that i would even go back to one of your questions of what was the difference one of the big differences that that suddenly i was working in a company that was founder-led so zuckerberg yeah he is still very much in control very much involved versus coming from intel where there was a ceo but it was it was much different and to zuckerberg's credit he would meet probably twice a month on Thursday mornings would do an open Q&A with the entire company Mm. and took any questions, uh, was very involved in most product decisions. And that was very different working in a founder-led company versus kind of Intel where the founder, I would argue, was Andy Grove or maybe even at the end when I first joined Craig Barrett. But one of the big differences is they have personal investment in the company and it's not just kind of a ceo with a bunch of stock options and a compensation plan you, and, a, and a a tenure the intel ceos it's like oh 10 years maybe is your kind of right tenure you do or maybe yeah. before or so you know like there could be some shorter amount of time but it was a, a position you were passing through where yeah Zuckerberg, it, it's that's very much his baby it's um he would send emails to the team i happened to work on facebook stories if there was something on stories that he didn't like or he was confused with, we would hear about it. And so he was very involved. And that, mm-hmm. that was a huge difference having kind of being in a founder-led company, which is crazy. When when I was there, it, I think it has about 60,000 employees, but he still had a very firm imprint. And so he was also, I think, taking a lot of that longer-term perspective or his leadership team was. Yeah. I've been impressed how the company has stuck with VR and AR as a, as a thing, you know, changing the whole name to meta is, is in that vein. But Intel was very different that way that we would get into a product line or try something out that was pretty cutting edge for, for a while. It was a TV. They started a TV service while I was there. There was a, there's all these different things they were trying out a, a streaming TV service before Netflix was really a big thing. And and then, you know, that lasts for a year or two and they're like, yeah, this is gonna be tough to make money or this isn't gonna make money as much money as chips We're out. And Zuckerberg as that founder led person has been able to say, oh no, we're gonna make this long-term bet. I'm investing myself, I'm investing my company and we're sticking with it. it it's a great point, Ian, because if you think of Intel, I would argue that Intel had AWS about 10 years before that actually happened. It was called Intel Online Services. They built a bunch of data centers around the world. And uh, probably after, like you said, two or three years, they gave it up. Uh, Intel had uh, really a tablet well before that. They did it. They gave it up. MP3 player. Intel had an MP3 player. Intel was doing streaming. Intel had the, as you mentioned, the the streaming services. So it is weird that um, Intel just didn't have the patience. And maybe that is, again, like we're talking about uh, CEO led or founder led, um, they were always having to respond to shareholders. And so if there wasn't the return, they had to move away. Probably Zuckerberg is making a 10 year bet on the metaverse. Um, and he can make that call. He doesn't, that's all up to him. And he's making that huge investment, which again is probably really fun. I noticed you had a couple of quests over there, but I probably it's, it's still five to 10 years out, but he continues to make a huge investment in that. Yeah, the the AWS slash Intel 
what'd you call it? Intel, Intel online services. Intel online services is maybe the best example. Like a lot of those things that Intel's gotten in and out of, it's probably smart. You know, like they weren't going to be easy businesses. They weren't near the core company. In, in fact, your Intel neighbor, might have been very good at them. Yeah. Right. Renee James, who said, you told me lives close to you. She was running that and they were building them all over the world. And like it, that was yeah. a bad business to get out of in the end, right? right. You stick yeah. with that. But, you but probably you know, it was well. probably <laughs> 10 years premature. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows what the company or what everything, what the world would look like. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's the alternate universe, I guess. So yeah, talking about work a little more, what do you think of as a couple of your big success points or like what, what made you feel successful in all that time? <laughs> uh, wow. That's a huge question. Um, as we were preparing for the podcast, you had asked me when I had got started. And as I had mentioned, this this sounds odd, but when I joined Intel, it was really just the beginning of the PC revolution. Yeah, And I remember doing research, again, this might sound crazy, but we were visiting small businesses who had yet to use a desktop computer and trying to understand kind of why they weren't adopting. Yeah, And so... One of the kind of early successes, I would say, is really trying to enlarge in the scope or the TAM of the, at that time, the desktop market. And what we were finding is ease of use was a huge deal. And Intel wasn't really thinking about it. And in fact, I don't even think Microsoft was thinking about it. And I can remember actually going up to Microsoft and sharing research we'd done on PCs. And, and this was all about how do we get the mainstream to adopt more PCs. And we were really pushing hard on ease of use. And even Microsoft still quite hadn't figured that out. And so I think that was a not, not the single reason why um, millions and millions of people and most households got a PC, but it was an important hurdle to get over to get past the early adopters mm. and to get more of the mainstream. Yeah. So for you, did that feel like this kind of personal success level of like, I got the company to notice something. You know, I found found an insight uh, by doing this market research. I saw people aren't having a good user experience and have, aren't having an easy time using these things. And then you kind of got the got the company or multiple companies in a way, Microsoft and Intel to to look into that or to kind of shine the spotlight to on it. To be bit more, more aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't I wouldn't say I single-handedly did that but as part of that as i think back into those early days probably one of my biggest accomplishments was getting the engineers to come out into the field with us Mm. and this had never been done before we're based both of us are based in oregon there's a zip code in oregon uh, 97219 which is where a lot of the engineers at intel live and lived at the time and i used to call it product development 97129, which is essentially they were building products for themselves and their neighbors, (laughs) all of whom worked at Intel and all of whom had engineering degrees. And a breakthrough was to actually convince engineering management to have those engineers come out into the field with me and the team. And we did that and it was mind blowing for these engineers. I remember we went to Sacramento and we took them with us and they saw in person how people were struggling to connect printers, to update drivers, just very basic things that they had thought that everybody knew. And so it was very important for them to see that in person yeah. versus me or the team going out and doing this research and coming back and in a PowerPoint 
slide deck saying the importance of ease of use, it was very impactful when they came out with us and they saw that for themselves. They then took this back into the company and they also be, then became advocates for this. Mm. So it was hugely important to get them out into the into the field with yeah. us and do the interviews and meet real people and talk to them about what their experience was using PCs. Yeah. How do you describe that? Like, how did that make you feel? Uh, it, it felt really great. It, it was, I remember it was a kind of a recruiting them and convincing their management team that it was worth their while to take these engineers on a three or four day trip was very challenging. Mm. And I had to talk about what the potential ROI would be. Um, just a ton of effort in, in convincing them to let them do that. And then having them come out, it was just very, um, it just felt really great because I would see these same engineers and they would always come up to me. And the first thing they would say is, wasn't that so great when you took us out into the field? And it makes me think completely different how I approach thinking about what capabilities that for them, they would put on the processor to help people get a better experience in using their PC. So it was very fulfilling for me when they would meet me afterwards. Yeah, that sounds rewarding, that kind of yeah. teaching aspect of it or the the having an idea and being able to share it with people like, hey, look, this is super important. I've noticed a lot of people in my network have become professors or teachers or something. I've, I've been surprised at that, that you know a lot of the really smart people I know um, have then spent their life doing that. And maybe that's kind of the core of it. The the heart of it is that that feeling of, I've got an idea and when I share it and the other person starts having that idea, it gives you a lot of joy. Definitely. So you also reminded me of something one of my organizational behavior professors would talk about is the, the politics and how like that ends up being maybe one of the biggest parts of your career or one of the most important skills to have is managing, managing up and down uh, in the organization and getting people to do stuff. Like you were saying, allowing you to bring the engineers out into the field and, you know, how does that, how has that skill served you over time or how have you tried to improve that ability to influence people? Uh, working at any large company and, and most of my experience has been working at large technology companies and it is extremely important to manage up, especially for, as you know, Ian, us being in market research, we're not always top of mind for people. And so, especially at Intel, a lot of the years we were reporting into the CMO. And so an important part of managing up is to make sure that they are aware of what you're working on and what the impact the team is driving. Mm -hmm. And maybe not in a good way, a significant amount of my time at Intel, especially in the last years, was doing a lot of managing up and simply educating people showing them how we were driving impact. Um, I don't necessarily think that was uh, that was a hugely beneficial use of my time, but it was just just the reality of the situation. And I think that working in a large company that that is just sadly, that's just that's what you have to do. You have to manage up. You have to be present, um, especially for us again in research where we may not always be top of mind. We always had to fight our way in. Sometimes I would say claw our way into the discussion yeah. and make sure that the voice of the user is represented. And when they're making decisions, it's not that we strive to completely 
drive them in a different direction. But ultimately, what we want to do is make sure that when they're making that decision, they're taking the end user into perspective. They're balancing what is the business objective, and they're balancing that with what are the insights that we are receiving? What is the best decision we should make? And that requires a lot of, uh, of, of managing up and pushing that up. Yeah. Any good stories you have from that time or like times when you've had to manage up? Yeah. In 2016 or 2017, there was a relatively new CEO at Intel. His name was Brian Kersanich. And for some reason, he was very negative on the PC business. And I think maybe he was trying to get it sold off. But his... What do you mean by the PC business? For um, Probably at Intel, I think at the time, he was very focused on the data center and he viewed the PC as a dying, kind of a dying business. Like the client, the the laptops and desktops the laptops, that people, the consumers and businesses do. Get, yeah, exactly. Get Just okay. the general selling PCs, whether they be desktops or laptops to consumers or businesses. He felt that was not a good business for Intel to be in. And he was often stating this publicly. And as we were looking at research at the time, we were not seeing the same thing. We were still seeing that the PC was a very critical element to somebody's life, whether they were a consumer and they were doing their own work, whether they were doing education, whether they were entertaining themselves through and this gaming. Is coming to the, the time point then too, like phones and tablets were, were exploded a, already. Great, yeah. They were a huge thing. And, you know, VR, AR kind of things were burgeoning. Like, oh, there's going to be these new platforms. And so I guess the, his feeling was the PC is this declining Exactly, a place where you're not going to you're going to need to use that as much in the future. Right? Who who needs a PC? I can do everything on my smartphone. I can do, and I remember him saying, "I can do my expenses. I can do all my approvals. I don't need see that. I don't need this business." And again, we were not seeing that. Yeah. You're totally correct. Everybody needs a smartphone. Nobody can imagine even 2017, 2018 life without a smartphone. Mm. Nevertheless, the PC was really still playing an important role, and so. I led an initiative uh, where we looked at what we called the state of the consumer PC and basically came back and said that the PC is still a very important part of the lives for consumers. Um, No, it is not on the level of the smartphone, but it still serves a lot of important roles. And maybe the most controversial element of that analysis was we utilized some social media listening techniques and found that the negative narrative on the PC was actually being driven by our CEO. Meaning that when there was news articles saying the death of the PC, he was often quoted in these news articles. And so as part of my analysis, I brought that, not just the research and the insights that told us that people still use the PC, it's critical. We even did a study where we took the PC away from consumers for two weeks Mm. and talked to them about what that was like and came back and found that it was extremely critical. Um, But again, part of that analysis was showing that the narrative of the PC being dead was being driven by the Intel CEO at the time, Brian Kersanich. That's so funny. And that was quite controversial to people thought that that would be crazy for me to bring that forth. Um, But I did, and it was very factual. And that research, or that entire analysis, which at the time we called State of the Consumer PC, I think served a really important role for the incoming head of the PC business unit, whose name is was at the time 
um, Gregory Bryant, who used that to really see that the PC still was a very important business. Mm. And over the next couple of years, he scaled that business up from about six or seven billion in quarterly revenue to 10 billion. Wow. Yeah, found that, found the growth, even though it was supposedly this uh, right. <laughs> dying yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, pretty cool. And in that time, losing Apple and things too, or those like other reasons to shrink and still finding lots of growth. Right. And I think it was an yeah. interesting time period and still is. Um, well, yeah, maybe enough about business stuff. Maybe what else should we talk about? What if, what do you find, what are some other good achievement points from your life? Or like when you think about all this, when you think back across the, all this time, what are times when you felt like, Hey, uh, that was a, that was a moment in my life where I felt successful. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I can pinpoint actual moments. Uh, Whether, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I, I, uh, my wife and I are lucky to have two boys and they're both in their early twenties and they're, we're in the process of becoming empty nesters and probably we both think back to how great it was raising our boys. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, I know you're a, a new parent. Yeah. That doesn't mean you stop being a parent. I'm lucky that both my parents are still alive and they're wow. still very much involved. And so even though they're in their early 20s, we're still involved at parents as parents, but we're not as involved, obviously, when they were much younger. But that's um, probably... I would say the most successful thing when I think back is just the amazing and fun time that uh, I had with my wife in raising our boys from zero to being young adults. Yeah, definitely. It, it does seem like one of the most rewarding parts of our lives. It's, uh, it's a trite idea, but uh, but true nonetheless, right? What uh, What are some of your biggest challenges from that time? Like, is it when they're a little kid or a teenager time or what's the, what's the, what's the tough part I should be looking forward to of this parenting gig? It, it's definitely switches. You could almost chunk it up by kind of grade school. Like it's, it's kind of easy in the beginning, like from zero to seven or eight years old. I mean, it's very easy to switch their attention. We used to, if they were acting up, I would just simply pick them up and turn them upside down and they would start laughing. And so it was easy to kind of switch the situation. It was, uh, easy to, to play with them. They were big into Legos, into Playmobil. So it's actually kind of a, maybe an easier part. I think the harder part of parenting starts when maybe it's fifth or sixth or seventh grade, they're going into middle school. Hmm. Uh, it just gets more complicated. And then you're into the high school years, you have to be more involved. But again, it's all they're all different phases and there are different challenges depending on the phase, but it there's also fun elements. So when they're getting to be in middle school, you can start to talk to them a little bit more, not like adults, but you can have more conversations about what's going on with the world. And as they get into high school, um, you, you know, there's a different set of challenges that you have to deal with as a parent, but it's, it, it's all kind of, you, I don't know, maybe you don't remember the super bad parts, but it's all, it's all kind of fun. And, um, there's, when you ask me, yeah, what I think of success, that's been the most, you know, enjoyable part yeah, absolutely. of my life. Is it the, uh, as they're growing up, is it that the consequences are bigger? Like if they fail at something or, 
yeah what makes it tougher you know even you you know it's important to fail too right like they can they can fail but yeah that's true like consequences are yeah when there are three like you have your son ian and there's no consequences for what he's doing at the moment yeah but he could he, fall and hurt his head right or well sure you know, run out into traffic yeah or he's not going like, to make any some physical stuff i worry about decisions that are going to impact him later but yeah right right yeah. he's not going to post anything yeah. to anywhere yeah. that's going to haunt him for the yeah i mean yeah. you that'll be a different challenge for you i mean when I remember them both being in middle school and that's when Snapchat and um, social media. So you'll, it'll just be, and even at, you know, working at Facebook, there's different, different age groups use technology much, much more differently. And so how your son and daughter use social media will be completely different than how my boys used it. It just kind of changes constantly. Yeah. I'm, I think a lot about AI and, how that's going to rapidly change things or whether, you know, my kids will need to go to college or because there'll be some tool they can use that does all that for you. Or, you know, there's like, I don't know, the world could just rapidly shift over the next 15 years. Or, uh, or there's a great podcast I listened to by Morgan Hassel, I think is his last name. Um, and he his, he's got a new book out and he actually talks about how little things change. Um, we may, th- yes, AI is going to have a significant impact yeah. on how we work and how we educate ourselves. There's no question about it, about that. But probably the fundamental issues that you will face as a parent were, are probably going to be the very same that I faced as a parent. So his point is that we think that things are changing all the time, but they're actually not. Uh, yeah, the same I challenges that, too, that like you're growing up a lot in those college years and, you know, fledging from your parents and, you know, learning to go out into the world and that kind of behavior and, and time will still be necessary for kids yeah, or young adults or whatever. So the, the place of the college will probably still be there, but maybe you'll just be doing something much different. You'll still spend four years doing something. Yeah. It, it's an important element. If, if you're fortunate enough to go, you know, we both went, it is a, an important four years of your life to just develop into a person. Yeah. But I sure think for Ian, your Ian, when he goes to college, yes, I, I think it'll be different. I mean, the cost is, the cost is outrageous. And there's so many kids that come out of college with just massive debt burdens. that I just don't think that's sustainable. So I do hope that element of it changes. Yeah. How do you think you, the time you spent in college, what did, what did you study in college and how did that lead to, you know, now you've had this long career, like, has it mattered what you did then? Or what did you learn then that you used all these, <laughs> you know, 30 plus years? Um, yeah, I, I, of course, being from Canada, I studied up in, in Canada and did an undergrad in history and political science. So a liberal arts education that probably today is not looked upon highly. Mm. And, and a lot of kids may go like, I'm not going to do that. That being said, I think what the best thing I learned from that is writing, the ability to communicate. I think it's also doing that education also leads you to maybe having a richer life. I'm interested in history. I'm interested in politics. I'm interested in how the world, it, 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 it drives a certain level of intellectual curiosity, which I think is great. Uh, at the time, I really enjoyed that, and that would that has been what I've said to my boys as well. Like 
study what you like because probably if you're studying something that you enjoy and like, you'll do you'll do well at it. Um, and that's really what matters. Yeah. They're both in college now or what's their, uh, one is finishing up and one has, uh, Oh yeah. What have they chosen to study or what's the, uh, they've both, um, decided to go into business and finance and marketing kind of similar to what their parents do, I guess. But that is, there's a lot of kids that, that do that. And that's again, just like what I said, that's what they found interesting. And that's, yeah, you didn't pressure them to go. No, another, you thought it was just, absolutely do whatever you want. Yeah. That's a yeah. tough call, tall yeah. or a well, not. I mean, tough choose, but there is a, a I wouldn't. That wouldn't be totally honest. I mean, if they said I'm going to do a major in art history, okay. Well, here's I, I'm giving here's a the job that could have left. right. Like <laughs> you know, too? be be cognizant of what you do study is going to be your launching pad going yeah. forward, and so you do have to bring in that practical reality into that. Yeah, you mentioned how you're from Canada. One thing I never knew about is like you do you have a lot of family back there or do you like how do you play between the two countries <laughs> and your cultures there or something, you know? Uh yes, my parents are living in Canada. They live in Victoria. My sister lives uh in British Columbia as well. Uh, my brother lives in, in the United Kingdom and uncles, aunts and cousins are still up there. Mm. But there's not, I, I've been living in the U.S. really since the early 90s at this and point. And you're pretty much the only one then. Yeah. yeah. And there's not, um, it's funny, my wife is American, but in a way, we grew up in the same culture. Again, this may sound kind of stupid, but we both watched Gilligan's Island or all those shows in the 70s and 80s. The culture in Canada is very impacted, influenced by the U.S. And so I would say our upbringing at least from a hollywood perspective was was very similar so there's not there's not a ton of differences although you know we go back quite a bit i do see the subtle differences that exist between the two countries and it's not just that there's healthcare and it's not just that there's gun control or at least canadians like to continually push that as what differentiates canada from the mm. us mm. there's more differences than that but at a high level, uh, it's been, you know, it's almost like I would say that Seattle, Portland, Vancouver are very similar. You know, they're in the Northwest. Some people call it Cascadia. Um, that's a very similar culture and way of living. And it's very different as opposed to being in Toronto or Philadelphia or New York, where I would say that is also kind of an East Coast mentality. Um, there's probably more differences there than Canada versus the United States. It really depends on what region of North America you live in. And I, yeah. I think there's different and unique cultural. And you think like uh, North Dakota or something is probably just more similar to uh, Northern Canada the, stuff yeah, too, or like that there's like probably yeah, sort of maybe Alberta. Yeah. Um, but I really think that the example of the Northwest of Vancouver and Seattle and Portland is a very unique place to live. And when you're up in Victoria or Vancouver, it feels and tastes uh, very similar to being in Portland or Seattle. Mm -hmm. When Adrian and I were filling out our, our ethnicities and things on our birth certificate for our, our new, new baby, it's like, I don't know what to write on that stuff anymore. It seems so silly. It's like, as the more and more generations we are away from some original country far mm -hmm. away, it's like, I just want to be able to check on that American. Does that ever ring true to you too of like, 
you know, this Canadian versus American oh. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think one thing I've noticed is, and I'll, I'll speak at a North American level, is that immigrants, and this is compared to what I've experienced having lived in Europe for a couple of years, immigrants coming to North America within one generation, I feel switch or integrate themselves, good or bad, I'm not in passing judgment, but I think much more quickly become Americans or become Canadians. Um, whether it's in Canada, there tends to be a lot of immigrants from India. And it's amazing in a good way is, at how quickly suddenly they're really Canadian. Their kids are playing hockey. They're watching Hockey Night in Canada. Yeah, um, They're still, I'm sure, maintaining the basics of their culture, but they've, they've made that switch. And I think in the U.S., it, I've experienced a similar situation where there's people coming over and, and quite quickly they integrate much more quicker versus Europe, where I don't, I really, this is just based on my experience, but I don't feel that they are as welcoming to new immigrants and- European countries? European the, countries, yeah. um, specifically in France. Um, where I have lived before and specifically with uh, people from North Africa, I, it's very evident to me that they struggle to fully integrate into French society. Mm. And they're having problems. That country, I believe today, is having problems because they're not doing a good job. I think you could say the same for Germany of integrating people in that come from different cultures. And so I think that I agree with you, like when you're answering those questions, as, as you're here longer, they become less relevant because you have integrated into the US, whereas I think, or Canada, whereas I think in France or Germany, they are less successful in integrating and, that, and that's bad for the French and Germans. Um, and so ethnicity matters more, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, even comes up in, in, within the U S right. Like I grew up in New York and people ask like, where are you from or something? And I'm like, I don't know. I, I've been in Portland here a long time. And why would I not just say I'm from you know, Oregon or Portland? Or, you know, at what point am I able to say I'm from here? Right. You know? Well, I mean, this is my comment to you about like, I think Vancouver, Seattle, Portland are a region Cascadia. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I kind of would identify more with being a Cascadian maybe than being an American or a Canadian. Yeah. It's the region that I'm kind of from. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned hockey once that made me think of, uh, what do Canadians think about like hockey in the U S or, or, or like these warm, warm places, Florida, you know, Nevada and things getting, getting teams and like people getting into it there. Is that weird? Is that, is that looked upon as positive or negative by Well, Canadians? I, you know, that, so first preface that I, I haven't lived in Canada on a regular basis for a long, long time. time. Yeah. However, as a massive Canadian hockey fan, I do find it bizarre that there is a team called the Florida Panthers, that there's the Phoenix Coyotes, that there are teams in the South, that there's the San Jose Sharks, et cetera. So as a purist, I do find that odd. However, the NHL is a business and I we lived in the Bay Area for a number of years and we went to a lot of Sharks games and the fans are very, you know, they wear the jerseys, they're totally into the Sharks. Yeah. I know in Florida and Tampa Bay, they, they have huge followings. So a lot of that is from 
Canadian snowbirds that are down there in the winter. But I guess on in, on the surface, it, it, it is weird. But, you know, the NHL is a business. They're just trying to expand their TAM, yeah. just like we were trying <laughs> to do at Intel. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, as a purist, I, I do find it bizarre. I, I'm more of a Chicago, Boston, Detroit, Toronto, Montreal, New York Rangers, kind of original six type of person. Hmm. That's true. Okay, so the northern U.S. there... New England, those teams are allowed to, to be right. considered yes. hockey yes. teams. And, you know, it's good Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's all... Well, I, I haven't looked at the player makeup lately, I guess. Is it all Canadian players still for a long time? No, that's, it was. it's not. Yeah. I mean, the Americans, again, don't, I don't, don't quote me on this directly, but there, if you looked at the average roster, I would bet today that 30% are American-born, 30% are maybe 35 or 40 percent are canadian the rest are european so mm. it's a much more multi-ethnic multi-background league than it was when when i was growing up where yeah. you're right where nine out of ten players on the boston bruins would all be from quebec and ontario up yeah. in canada but it's it's changed today the u.s is a very um it, it it's probably you know the second best hockey country in the world yeah well it's a nice thing to say, I suppose. There you go. <laughs> yes. Note, I said second best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got that. Yes, yeah, so you mentioned your family and your kids. One thing we've been dealing with lately is as our, our son starts getting older, we have to start thinking about where he's going to go to school mm. and like how to make those decisions around town. And right now, the, the Portland teachers are on strike, and it's uh, you know the public schools are in turmoil a bit, and and you know that's just like one more sign of like how do you make this decision of going private schools or public schools or like, how, how did you guys do that? Where, where'd your kids go? Or is that, was that important to their lives? Yeah, that was, uh, I, I probably started, which I imagine the same for you all is where do you buy your house? Which is still a, I think a driving factor in choosing where to live is what are the good schools. And as I had mentioned, we live down in the Bay area we moved up here in 2004, and the very first thing we thought of was where's where are the good schools? Of course, we thought about the commute distance to Intel, but we're very focused on trying to buy a house that was in a very good elementary school at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so schooling was always a super important part of our decision, even when uh, we moved, we were lucky enough to find a home in Oak Hills, there's a great public school called Oak Hills Elementary. Both our boys did one through five there. It was fantastic. And then after Oak Hills, we also had that, we then faced that decision of, should they continue in public school? What are our private school options? I think it really depends on, you know, I, I don't think there's any advice I could give. I think it's, what are the circumstances that you and your partner find yourself in? Uh, these public private schools are expensive yeah. for sure. Um, and it really, you know, what is, what is your public school option? So for example, for you, what is, what is the, what is the elementary school here? Yeah. Yeah. Is we're it in West the, Haven? We're in the Ainsworth district. Oh, okay. Yeah. I assume those are very solid schools. Yeah. We chose this house in our location based on, uh, you know, trying to get good schools that way. Yeah. And yet still there's this idea of like, what does good mean or how are you, you know, you can go to the private schools and uh, some of the top ones there, they're definitely super expensive. 
and they're really, they have really nice campuses. They have nice teachers and like, what do you compare to? Like, how good does it need to be? What am I, is my son or daughter really going to get some bigger value, have a better life, have more happiness? Like, I don't know. And how do you, how do you measure that? How do you make a decision about it? Or should you save your money and put it in their 529? Yeah. Or as or you just, mentioned uh, to me, maybe to some Ian Jr., you know, by the time he gets to university age, they, nobody goes to university. I don't think that will be the case. But Right. Like maybe all this is to, your goal is let's get them into the best college. So I got to spend the most money now to make sure they're yeah, the best I, prep schools wow, to get to the that, best college. You know, and then... Yeah. Uh, having been through that, um, I, you know, as I said, I've got one son he's finishing. And as a parent that has... Uh, paid for and supported two kids that have gone through the U.S. college system. I, I think there's just so much hoopla. I think that there's so much pressure that that you get as parents and even on the kids, kind of there's so much on what school are you going to and where are you applying to? I remember one counselor said, you know, at the end of the day, wherever they go, they're going to enjoy it. And I, I felt that that was, in retrospect, really good advice. And I think that we as parents got caught up in all that hoopla. Um, college is extremely expensive and it's very stressful, especially when you're, you know, this is a long way for you, but when they get to 10th and 11th grade and they have to think about standardized testing. And by the way, that living in the US or Canada is nothing like living in China or India or my friend in the UK that was telling me about all the standardized testing mm. that happens literally starting in fifth and sixth grade. And those standardized tests impact kind of where you'll go to middle school, where you'll go to high school, yeah. which then impacts where you go to college. So there's actually much more pressure, I think, in other or countries. Or it's more, more choice and money-based here almost than yeah. where <laughs> there where you, you got to test into it and, but, and there's yeah, a lot of pressure I mean, I on think, the kids. I think that that was not, um, you know, we went through it, but there was just so much pressure. And I feel that there was almost too much pressure now that I think back. And I think back to that, that one person said where, yeah, they're going to go to a good school and they're probably going to enjoy kind of wherever they go. Um, so I, I'm glad that is behind us as parents, the whole kind of schooling, but it is a huge issue. And I think that everybody, everybody's situation is unique in terms of whether you're thinking of a public private school at kindergarten or one through five or middle school or high school. Um, but the Beaverton, I think Beaverton and Portland does, does have excellent public schools. We went down the path of, we felt that in the beginning, the public school was great. It was in our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. We wanted them to have that experience. Both my wife and I went to public schools. And then after a lot of thinking, we went down the path of going to a private school for middle school and then eventually high school. Mm. Yeah, and that's and we don't, there, you yeah, know, do you we don't regret it at all. You, no, yeah. we don't regret it. Um, we fortunately we had the income to cover it, um, but absolutely no regrets. I don't think that it was a life or death decision. And had they gone to a public school, it would have been a disaster. That being said, um, if I were to do it all over, if my wife and I were to do it all over again, I think we would have made the same choices. Mm, mm. Yeah, it seems like a lot of it could be about the people you're around too, or the 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 friends they have. The yeah, there's the just a lot of stuff. pressure in in being parents. 
um, and what are other kids doing? But ultimately, you you know you have to make that decision yeah. with your partner that that yeah. and, and try and block out what everybody is telling you and how bad it is and this and that and you know everybody's situation is unique. Yeah, yeah. We'll try something and see what happens. Right? <laughs> yeah, it'll be as good as it gets. So while you were doing your corporate jobs, I noticed one thing about your profile and your your ethos was that you you valued personal coaching and like mentoring people during that time. And it seemed like now you've added that into your business line as as one of the things you're you're willing to do in your your PMF insights days. What does yeah personal coaching mean to you? And what do you find really valuable about that? Um, yeah, coaching is an important element of. I would say both my professional side as well as my personal side, maybe even starting on the personal side. Uh, well, it's not directly related to coaching. Probably the one of my, the best things I've ever done as a parent is coach my kids in sports. Oh, right. And uh, I just, you know, if there's one piece of advice that I would give to you as, as a parent, that's an, an emerging parent is, coach your kids or be involved. And it doesn't have to be in sports. I happen to be, um, have a lot of experience playing soccer and coaching soccer. And so for both boys was very active in, in coaching their soccer teams. And then that extended to basketball teams uh, as well. Um, so maybe it's that you're into Lego robotics or debating, or that was such a great part of being a parent and such a no brainer for, for me is being a coach. Why was it so good? What, what? I, it's just, it was just so much fun to be a coach. And and even our oldest son was coming home this week and we were laughing about upward basketball, which was, I used to call Hoops for Jesus, which was a church-based basketball league for kids from first grade to fifth grade. And we were reminiscing about how fun that was. And I was at, you know, I'm not a basketball expert, but I was an assistant coach, but we were laughing at, at what a great time that was. And there's been literally hundreds of games of soccer that I've coached and it, it's just such a fond memory. So your kids look back on it fondly now too. Were they like that at the time or were they more like, oh gosh, why is my dad here? Like, can I, I get away from him? No, I don't, I don't, I mean, you'd have to ask them, but I, I don't think so. Um, I think it was just normal. And it's not even just my own kids. It's just so fun when today I'll see one of the kids I coached and, you know, now they're anywhere from 21 or 23 years old and they still call me coach and they're still laughing. And they tell, you know, one of the things I used to tell the soccer team was to get stuck in, which is get in on the tackle. Don't kind of let the person just go by you get stuck in. And so every time I see this one kid, he's always telling me to get stuck in. So it's not just the boys, it's just all the kids that I've coached over the years it's just so fun to to run into them again. And we just immediately have smiles on our faces. So that's just kind of as a parent, whatever, whether again, it's Lego robotics, whether it's debating, whether it's soccer, basketball, baseball, get involved. It's so much fun. Uh, I, I just can't say that enough. So that that coaching may or may not have indirectly led me to leadership coaching, which is different. Um, but I guess there are some similarities, but in around 2017, I luckily Intel agreed to pay for my classes at something called the Hudson Institute of Coaching, which is based in Santa, Santa Barbara. And I underwent a nine month program, 
which involved becoming a leadership coach. And that was great. I enjoyed the coaching and mentoring element of being a manager. And at Intel at the time, there was a very big coaching culture. And so emerging out of that program, I then took on individual clients at Intel. And these would typically be senior engineers. And I would be coaching them on a variety of topics. Maybe they needed to become better at collaboration uh, or maybe even just simply better communicators, um, how they could better lead geographical, uh, multi-geo-based teams, and usually would take on one or two clients at a time. And then when I left Intel, I managed to do the same at Facebook. Facebook didn't have the same coaching culture at Intel, Hmm. but managed to develop my own practice. Again, take one or two clients, again, typically more on the technical side. And it's something that I've built into my PMF Insights consulting firm. And I do have a leadership coaching element to that as well. So coaching has just been great. And not not just in, in my professional aspect, but even in just in life, um, you just, you, you learn some key traits, which I, I try and incorporate into my personal life as well, leading with being a better listener and doing more asking questions versus telling people what to do. We were just talking about school choices and things like that. And I don't think it's right for someone to jump in and give advice. I think it's better to elicit kind of their own thoughts and ask them questions because I know that you and your wife are going to make the best decision on whether Ian Jr. goes to private school or public school. It's far be it for me to give you advice on that. But as as a leadership coach, what I can do is kind of draw out through questioning and listening mm. and get you to the solution um, that you think it that you and your wife think is is the right solution. So that's an example of coaching, which again is very much on listening and asking questions versus telling people what to do. And so I've used that both professionally, but also even <laughs> with my wife, where I've tried my best, or my boys or my family, is not to always jump right into advice mode, but be a better listener. Um, ask, try and get to solutions by asking a lot of questions, and really rely on that other person to come up with their own solution. Yeah, that's great advice and great way to... But I'm not giving advice. Great method on uh, on how to handle these kind of things. Right, how to, how right, to coach people. Right. To, like one thing I try to do through this podcast is just bring up stories of how other people have done right. things, right? So that you could have these in your own mind of, oh, when I encounter problem X, I heard those three people talk about different ways they handled problem X. Yeah. And you could choose your own path, right? Right. But, but uh, helping people figure out the framework for themselves... It's kind of what you're talking about. It yeah. does, does seem really important to guide yourself through that. You kind of talked about that at the very beginning of this podcast on the, your PMF Insights case you were talking about, your friend that's doing the gaming business. is It's hard to do that. It's like sometimes you have this path already set in mind and you kind of helped him figure out what are the questions I should be asking myself? How do I answer those questions in order to find the right path for yeah, myself? And, 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 and that's, a, that's a great example of he is much more knowledgeable about the gaming industry than I would be in the role of product advisor or even leadership coach. And so part of my role is, is to bring, through questioning and listening, kind of bring him to what he believes to be the best solution, not tell him. Yeah, you're not an expert in that area. No, I'm not. You can't tell him what to do. Exactly. He's the expert. And, yeah. and the solution actually rests within his head. 
and coaching is all about bringing that out of him. Yeah. And if he comes up with a solution, then he's going to own that solution much more than if somebody is telling him what to do. In market research, there is a question mark on that same kind of thing. Like, should your market research moderator or your your person working on stuff be really familiar with the topic that they're interviewing the people about? Or does it not matter? They could, you know, if it's about gaming, you know, you want to interview some people about gaming. Should the moderator be well-versed in gaming and be an expert in that? Or anybody could do it. It's more about being able to ask the questions. I think, I, th- I think you're right in that if a moderator does have a background in gaming, um, I know that when we worked together, you did a lot of research into AR at the time. I don't even know if we were calling it VR. You had a background and passion for that, which I think made you an even better researcher Mm -hmm. versus somebody that is great at asking questions, but doesn't necessarily have the context. So I'd say in the perfect to world, know the right questions to ask. Yeah, I think that's it, somebody should have a bit of a background mm-hmm. there. That being said, the basics that we know from our research backgrounds, you shouldn't ask leading questions. You should try and be very open-ended in you ha- how you ask questions. But I think that the extent to which you can have a passion or a background does make you probably better able to ask questions. Yeah. yeah. Interesting stuff. Tough, tough calls. What other hobbies have you been doing besides all this work stuff? <laughs> uh, my, my, probably my favorite hobby continues to be growing fruit. That's right. Um, I always yeah, forget so remember about Remember we, I, I, we, you were asking my advice on apple trees. Is it this house? That, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, you're going to have to show we it to, to a me. party at your house way back in the oh, day. And right. I saw your whole yeah. backyard, which is full yeah. of yeah, you know, luscious uh, fruits yeah. and vegetables that you grow every year, and yeah, you pack we, it all into like a relatively small amount of space. You have a huge true. amount of. Produce. In fact, I should have brought you some persimmons. That that's a miss. Um, our persimmon tree is absolutely loaded this year. Oh wow! And I've been giving them out left and right. That that's really I've never had I, one. I bought one at the store. Wow! To try I, it, I should never. But yeah, I mean that that's a that's a lot of fun. When we moved up from California. One of the first things we did was plant a lot of fruit trees. I've, I've lost count, but we may have, on just a kind of classic suburban lot, maybe we have 15 to 20 fruit trees, ranging from apples to pears to blackberries, three varieties of grapes, uh, persimmons, an odd fruit called quince. Actually, I'm going to bake some quince probably tonight. Um yeah, and I so, remember you told me about bees then too. That yeah, the, the tube of bees. What are they? Yeah, that, bees. What are um, they called? Yeah, mason bees. mason bees. I've kind of lost that, but there were several years where I was raising mason bees with the sole purpose being that mason bees are actually much more effective pollinators hmm. than classic honeybees. They tend to come out in 57, 58, 59 degrees, whereas the honeybee has to wait a little bit longer. Hmm. Good so, for Oregon or Exactly. So when the bigger. apple trees are blossoming or the plums or um, pears, the mason bees are very hard workers. Um, but there's, there's a little bit of effort involved in cleaning the tubes and um, raising them and things like that. But it does mean, back to Intel terms, your yield of fruit will be that much more if you have mason bees. Yeah. Hmm. I just was, it was a new thing for me. And now I've seen those little tubes and the, yeah. the houses for them all over the place. But Maybe when um, Ian Jr. is a little bit older, 
it can be actually a fun activity to help yeah. increase if the yield of your some... apple tree production. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. We can look at those if you want. Well, I get, they get nailed by the deer. That's been my big problem. It's just oh, deer, uh, yeah, don't or get me rabbits, started. rabbits and deer. Yeah. You know, I think I yeah. had to build a fence around them next I'm year. not a supporter of the deer. <laughs> or I, I guess I am. That's my problem. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> no, yeah. They're, they're, eating, they're yeah. eating all my crops. Yeah. But uh, it's just they haven't had an apex, apex predator hmm. for a number of years. And so their population is just out of control. We've got some coyotes around here. I don't think they oh, take the deer good. down yeah, too much. Yeah, deer might they're be big, a little though. bit big. We had one day over to our park. We were just walking out at night and it just like jumped out of the, the bushes and ran across the park. Yeah, it was yeah. insane. And it was Yeah, they're quite large. stealthy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, for cats, that's a, that's a bad scene for a cat out at night. In, in our neighborhood, you'll often see, unfortunately, but I'm actually not a big cat fan, but uh, lost cat. Mm. And it usually means that a coyote has had that cat for dinner. I've heard the owls are a big cat really? predator as well. I had not heard that. And the, the, one of the signs to look for was like, if there's a mess there, it was probably a coyote. But if it if there's no mess and the cat's just gone, it's more likely it was an owl. Wow. And the story I heard additionally to that was that they went, they found the owl's nest. And you know how owls like, they'll eat the whole thing and then they'll spit out parts or whatever. Yeah. But they make a mess uh, around their nest as well, where they're pooping and dropping everything. Anyway, they found the owl's nest and underneath it was like 20 cat collars wow that's awesome <laughs> yeah so that's the that's why they suggest keeping your pets indoors or <laughs> right so i'll just yeah. swoops okay. down and cool takes it right away cool yeah mm. so yeah you've got all this fruit coming in stuff are you going to be making anything special for thanksgiving do you have any great recipes from your garden well actually this morning before coming i brined the turkey and part of that brining prop process is including thyme from the garden as well as several other herbs and mm -hmm. so we grow those specifically for turkey i smoke it on a weber and so for about 24 hours we'll put it in a brine mix to get it ready to go yeah you're not using thyme much much else in the season you're just uh, one you, little you know, thyme right yeah it's literally just for the just turkey. This poultry yeah it's, it's just for this poultry i mean we use it the odd time but its major role is for uh smoking the turkey on yeah. the weber and then I was mentioning um, back when you asked me about the fruit trees, it is, we have this odd fruit called quince, which originates more from the Caspian Sea region, Turkey, parts of Russia. And it is a mix of an apple and a pear, but you can't eat it fresh. It's very hard. And so you have to cook it. And mm. so tonight I will, this isn't a tr tradition, but maybe I'll be starting a tradition is I'm going to bake it with a little bit of butter and sugar and cinnamon, bake it for 40 or 60 minutes and then top it off with a little bit of ice cream. So that'll be a new tradition. And yeah. then as mentioned, we have so many persimmons coming out of our ears. How do you eat those? What's the... There's a couple schools of thought. I personally like them when they're a little bit crunchy and then other people like them when they're very soft. And so you could almost eat them like with a spoon. It would mm -hmm. be like eating custard. You can do, I make a pretty good persimmon bread once they've softened up. Um, so there's a, a lot of things, but I'm probably eating over the past three or four weeks, kind of one to three persimmon a day. It turns out that our dogs, we have two cattle dogs have come to love persimmons. 
as well. And so they're also enjoying them. They just grab them off the ground or? You, uh, you well, one of them, them Chaco, actually, we've seen him jump up and grab the first <laughs> a nice fresh one um and the other one indigo she just eats them when they're on the ground yeah. yeah that's fun yeah do they like clean up the yard that way or are they more make a mess of it the dogs yeah the aftermath of them eating the persimmons is the mess that we have to deal with <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. so yeah you're looking forward to the holidays you got uh, how, how do you deal with in-laws coming over and uh, all this stuff has it been tough in your family this holiday is actually going to be fairly, there's not going to be many people. It'll just be one of my sons and his girlfriend and my wife and I, so it'll be fairly straightforward. But typically over Thanksgiving, we have had a lot of people come over. And in one particular instance, um, we had a lot of my wife's sisters and and their families come. Um, actually, it was kind of two or three Thanksgivings that we had this, where there was a lot of people in the house. They were staying with us. I felt toward the end, I was turning into Jay Pritchett from Modern Family, which means kind of angry white guy. Um, but when when I think back to it, they were actually, I mostly have fond memories. It was it was just so much fun. So what made you get into that mode or how did you? Become Jay Pritchett? Yeah. I, I think it was probably because there was too many people in the house or I was getting tired of cleaning and making so many meals. I think that was, I turned into Jay Pritchett possibly yeah, on Sunday morning. Yeah, what's the right morning. amount of time have you found for uh, people to stay at the house? You know, like I, two days or like a week or like what's the, how long can people stay before they get how, I mean, guests I, in general? Yeah, I, I think it really is three days, like fish, you know, that that saying. I don't know. Three, well, that, after three days, the fish stinks. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's great. It's great to have family and come over and stay. It, it's awesome. Um, but yeah, I think a couple of days is, is good. Yeah. There's yeah. this weird balance too, of like entertaining versus just trying to live your life or you know, as, yeah. as a person stays longer and longer. Yeah, or. totally. Because people are so busy and they have their routine. One of the things that we try and do to the best of our ability is if we're staying with somebody and I credit my parents to this, we will take that family out to, we'll make sure that we take them out to dinner one of the nights, mm. because I think it can get tiresome if somebody's always cooking and cleaning and doing that. And I think it's really great when you're staying with somebody to one of the nights pick and say, hey, dinner's on us tonight. Pick your favorite restaurant. I think that's a great family tradition. All right. um, that, tip of that the day. Have. Yeah. Tip All of right. the day for Sounds sure. Good. Yeah. Well, anything else you want to talk about or should we, uh, should we call it here? And I think it's good. You know, I, I think it's fantastic. You're doing this. I'm so impressed with your setup and not just the how you've done it technically but again before the podcast you were explaining to me getting on podcast on or on spotify on apple your youtube channel i think it's very entrepreneurial of you to do this and i think that is a new way going forward which which is very different in that in a lot of people do have side hustles and it's not just about i have this corporate job or i have this w2 job Yes, that, that's largely the case. But yeah. in many cases, the way that technology has evolved, it really does enable a lot of these side hustles. So I, I think it's fantastic that you're doing this. Yeah, I'm really hopeful to get it to be this thing I can do on the side, have another main project I'm doing, yeah. and then this uh, production gets streamlined enough that it's that it's easy. It's still pretty challenging, but I'm I'm getting well, better at it. I'm I mean, it's better, just, so. I mean, it's as working with these startups, it's, it's really hard in the beginning. And 
nobody's making any money in the beginning, but there's patience and perseverance. Yeah. And, you know, eventually as you get more and more people doing this and become even better, you're, you're doing a great job in asking questions um, okay. and you'll get better over time. Yeah. Um, and it's just going to compound on itself. And soon you're going to have this great side gig going. Yeah, hopefully that's the, that'd be a nice goal. I think that it's yeah. just cruising along. And I, one of the main reasons I did it was just to reconnect with friends and, and, you know, yeah. build my network that way or just, you know, totally yeah, be in touch with people. And yeah. So yeah. And not that, everybody needs that happens to, regardless of whatever. Else not everybody like. needs to listen to Benjamin Netanyahu or Elon Musk. Like, yes, those, those things are interesting, but um, I think it is your focus on just having every day normal people come and share their thoughts is is intriguing. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully it'll be useful. All right, well, thank you very much. And thank we'll you, Ian. talk again soon. Okay. Thanks a ton for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you learned something and I'll see you next time, friends.